Good morning, Friendship Church and Grant Kaisersot. Hi. <laughs> Who's happily waving? Hi, good friend. <laughs> welcome to Friendship Church and welcome to those online uh, watching. And I just wanted to give a couple quick announcements to you this morning. Uh, the first one being Believer's Baptism, uh, two weeks from this Sunday. Both campuses, second service. You can register at friendshipmn.org, front slash baptism, if you are five or 99, <laughs> 102, if you live that long, that's, that's a record, right? 120-some is the record. However old you are, if your faith is in Jesus and you want to uh, show that pledge to people to follow him unto death, your whole life faithful to him, you can come and sign up for baptism on the website. We'd love to see uh, those baptism tanks used well. <laughs> so uh, sign up at, at uh, friendshipmn.org, front slash baptism. Uh, second, I want to let you know that there is a life group table out in the foyer. If you want to sign up for a life group, my beautiful friend, David Marmalejo, uh, told me about a table out there. Uh, don't get distracted by the handsome man uh, back there. But um, anyway, the table is for your opportunity to find out what kind of life groups are available and where you might fit. And so don't forget about that. And finally, Flood Parent Connect. We want to be connected to parents. So a week from today, next Sunday, 2.30 to 3.30, Flood Room, Shakopee Campus for one hour. We're going to have a discussion around discipline to discipleship. And what does that look like? Baton passing between parents, pastors, and others. Uh, let's have a discussion about the battle, the warfare, and the joys of raising children together, especially that middle school, middle section. All right? You know what I'm talking about. All right. So here we go. With no further ado, the word of God. Uh, would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you so much for your word. It's rich, it's powerful, it's effective, it's challenging. It's what we need. It's our life bread. It's our life line in this age of uncertainty. So we look to you. We trust your word. We know we depend on every word of it coming from your mouth. And so we give our hearts wholly to it this morning to open them for instruction, correction, encouragement in the way of living. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Abraham, or Abram, is still his name in this time, jumped to a new life. Last week we talked about Abram. Astounding promises. The gospel itself was preached beforehand to Abraham according to Paul. We're going to see that in a second in Galatians 3. But he was promised a land. We know there's a nation uh, that got the promised land given to them. Abraham became that great nation. God promised to make him a great nation, to be a blessing to all nations. Plan A from the beginning was that all nations would be blessed in the gospel which was seen through the faith of Abraham. And then finally, that God would take care of any enemies that stood in Abraham's way. Well, we're gonna find out that that's where his faith fail happened today, is he did not trust God with uh, the enemies. So with that, uh, look at me, look with me <laughs> while you're looking at me now to Galatians 3, uh, verse 7 through 9. And in this context, Paul's saying, the works of the law aren't what we depend on for salvation. He's saying it's faith. So he says in verse 7, now then, Galatians 3, 7, then it, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, or nations, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you 
shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Wow. Just imagine Abraham hearing all nations of the earth are going to be blessed in you. And he'd be like, yeah, sure, whatever that means, right? It's so profound. What does that even mean? How many nations were there? What if he knew about how many nations there would become? Can you imagine if he understood that? But that same grand promise has regards for all the current nations we are today. All nations are blessed only in the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And so Abraham, or Abram at the time, is given these great promises, and we see he's called the man of faith. Anytime you go through the New Testament, it references Abraham as the example of true faith. And as we're going to see today, that doesn't mean it's without failure. In fact, it goes with a lot of failure, but thankfully our failure is always forward in our faith, or at least it always can be forward in our faith. So Abram, or Abraham, as his name will become later, was also described as the friend of God because he was blameless before God. We're going to see how God works with Abraham through this series and forms him into a blameless, faithful keeper of the covenant because of God. (laughs) Because of God. That's a key element to understand. And that's exactly what our faith is. It's a faith that's in God. And so now we see Jesus' call to us, as Pastor Matt said last week, um, is a high call. It's a call to lose our life. It's a call to love God more than our family, possessions, and comforts. It's a radical call to simple obedience, a simply radical, radically simple call. And so what we see Jesus saying is that there's tests coming in our faith in the New Testament, but there's also blessing, right, of following Jesus. It's a salty, sweet combo. Good taste, right? Don't always like the salt so much in life, but there's sweet in it. It's salty sweet to follow Jesus. It's savory as we look on his face and we remember where this thing's going. It's salty when we feel the weight of our trials and the difficulties that are coming upon us, right? But they're going to press us toward Christ as, the, as, as a song we're going to sing later, I'll save, uh, talks about. I almost said we already sang it, but we didn't. It was last service. Okay. So anyway, we'll save that. Let you guys encounter that later. So Abraham, or Abram, uh, was a man of faith and a friend of God. And Jesus' call for us is just that. Well, Abraham, or Abram, has three tests today in this text, and he fails all three. <laughs> but he fails forward, and so can we. And so what we see about him uh, in this map on the screen is, as Pastor Matt talked about the journey from Ur, the yellow on the bottom right southeast corner of the map, uh, we have Ur of the Chaldees, or Samaria, early day Samaria, or Mesopotamia, Su, S-U-M, not Samaria, but Sumeria, and the original, uh, the original uh, of many things, okay, the early, early culture. And Abram went up the green path toward the northwest, and as he came to Haran, he camped out and made his way down past my daughter Mari, oh, wait, same name, same spell, but, and came down 
all the way into modern-day Israel in the red on the southwest side of your screen. And in the middle of that red representing the nation of Israel, in the middle you see Bethel, which says, means house of God. And house of God was located close to Ai, which my son reminded me means artificial intelligence. Uh, just kidding. But it became a city of rubble when Achan had sinned and harbored some of the, 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 the beautiful linen and gold from Ai, which God specifically had commanded them not to do. So it became a city of rubble. So you see Abram sitting between these two, two cities, uh, camping out and his, pitching his tent between the crisis decision of house of God and house of rubble. Well, Abram moved on to the promised land, and when he came to the promised land, there was a small problem. In the first verse in our text, the first half of Genesis 12a, we have, now there was a famine in the land. Okay, famines were a central piece to the, the scriptures. Jacob, who became the nation of Israel, went down to Egypt where his son Joseph had been sent ahead to provide provisions for them. It drove them to Egypt to meet Joseph, which led them to slavery, which led them to deliverance, to see God as their God who delivers. God worked through the famine. Another famine is in the day of Elijah. He's the first prominent prophet we see in 1 Kings. And at his word, there was no rain, the word that came from the Lord, and at his word that came from the Lord, it would rain again. But his word that was an example to the people became his demise because the water ran out in the creek and the ravens had to bring him food and, and God was working through it all. Another famine that's grand in the scripture narrative is the New Testament. Agabus prophesied there'd be a great famine in the land of Israel. Well, what happened is Paul would go ahead to all these churches and all the letters, almost every one of Paul's, speak of the contribution to the saints in Jerusalem for the famine relief. You think God's working relationally there between Jew and Gentile? Indeed he is, through a trial. And so famine is important to understand. It, it represents our spiritual condition. We're hungering and we're thirsting for righteousness in this life. And when we do, we're satisfied, right? Both now by God's presence, when we have that heart posture of repentance and fasting and mourning and turning to the Lord our whole heart, and ultimately in the day when we see his face, We'll awaken his likeness and we'll be satisfied. Psalm 17 closes with that hope of eternal life. And so we know that there's a satisfaction coming for those who hunger and thirst. So there's a famine in this age for the, the word of God. Amos prophesied that that was the case in Israel's day in Amos, in ancient Israel. He said, there's a famine in the land, but not for food, but for the word of God. In our heart's condition, we can see there is a famine for the word of God. Whether we're satisfied or not, there's always a famine. And God is going to use trials to expose that to us so we keep depending on him and leaning on him. And so Abram described, or shows this, exemplifies this in his faith. And so he comes to the land. It's not just any land. It's the promised land. Last week, God called him to jump, and he did. What did Abram jump from? Pastor Matt describes this. It's, uh, he described this last week. It's in Joshua 24. It says, Abram, long ago, it says, your fathers, Joshua 24, 2, lived beyond the Euphrates back in Samaria or Mesopotamia. They lived there in modern-day Iraq. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. 
So he wasn't just making a sandcastle in the desert. <laughs> he was worshiping the many gods and many more gods. As any polytheism of worshiping many gods, you have to keep adding gods because they're not near scratching the surface of the one true living God, and you have to keep filling gaps and answer questions with more gods. And so Abram forsook that life because God spoke to him, and he jumped in faith. He jumped in faith, and we're called to jump in faith. On the next slide, it says that God called Abraham, or Abram, I should say, and by extension, we know in the gospel, he calls us, he calls us, the same way he called Abram, it's a picture, not a perfect one, but it's a picture of how he calls us uh, to a crisis of turning from idols to a complete dependence on the true and living God. Because we know this world's filled with idols and our heart is filled with idols, right? We need to understand, not only is this an Old and New Testament call to forsake idols, but in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 14 the prophet said, they set up idols in their heart. So in their heart of hearts, they're idolatrous, right? Paul says that greed or living a covetous lifestyle, living for this life is idolatry. It's a synonym for idolatry, uh, both in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. And so idolatry, Paul said in Thessalonica of the region in Greece, Achaia, he said, there's a testimony that sounded out through the whole world that you turn from idols to worship the true and living God, to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus, who saves us from the wrath to come. So idolatry, obviously being the second commandment in the Ten Commandments of the law, we're to have no images, physical images or mental images of who God is that dumbs him down to not be the righteous judge of all the earth and the only savior and the omnipotent one, the only all-powerful that deserves our whole heart of worship. Idolatry is not just about negatively looking for idols. It's about worshiping God with your whole heart and letting him expose idols for what they are so you can throw them as rubbish with a tender heart like Josiah did in his reforms. And so idolatry goes deeper than physical images, obviously, right? And so then shortly after this crisis of decision, we see Abraham's faith falter in response to the famine in the land of promise. He flees to Egypt, depends uh, on Egypt rather than God. And this is where we pick up in verse 10, letter B, second part of 1210 of Genesis. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know you're a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife, and then they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. Say, you're my sister, that may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. <laughs> okay? Oh, boy. How cowardly, Right? Men, we can relate. Instead of being understanding with our wife, and she probably had the right answer if we just listened to her, and we go on and hard-headed and make a bad decision, and it backfires, pretty common. Wives would admit they make their own mistakes, but we as guys can relate that, yeah, this is pretty normal. This text here, we can relate in some way, shape, or form. And if we haven't been married yet, if you haven't been married yet, you, you will one day. <laughs> so... 
<laughs> it's normal. It's marriage. It's a lot of conflict to work through, and there's a lot of love to cultivate at the same time. So Abram had two test fails back to back. First one is he left the land of promise for Egypt to look for food rather than depend on God, right, who could give ravens to bring food or whatever. And he lied to Pharaoh in an act of self-preservation. Self-preservation. Let me tell you, this is one of the prominent idols of our culture. Self-preservation. We could go on down the line the list of our lifestyle and, and realize that between our money, hospitality, and not letting people in our house, uh, worrying more about the perfection of how our whoever cuts our lawn cuts our lawn and having the right to complain that they burnt it and even be volatile about it, you know, etc. Many examples of protecting our own and protecting our image and self-preservation is a strong lure and temptation and it's, it's the opposition to the fruit of the Spirit in the gospel. It's the, it's the work of the flesh. We tend to want to preserve ourselves rather than have a risk-taking trust in God. And so, Moving on in the text, we see Abram enters Egypt. The Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, males, donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So Pharaoh took her into his harem of women And just imagine that. Now, Sarai is in the midst of the harem of Pharaoh's women. Wow, this is a faith fail. Why? So it's good for me. Who knows what's going to happen with you, honey, but it's good for me. (laughs) Live with your wife in an understanding way. Hmm, okay. All right. (laughs) So in this culture, uh, what we see in the next verse is that the Lord afflicts Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. He's saying, alert, Pharaoh, alert, alert. (laughs) Not your wife. She's in your household. Leave her alone. I have a plan for her for the ages of redemption. (laughs) Don't mess around. Abram, I told you I would take care of your enemies and curse those who cursed you or whatever. I'll take care of you. You didn't believe me. I got this. I'll rescue you. (laughs) And so he does. Well, in this culture... This kind of plague would have been seen as an act of the gods, the many gods, right? And the question would be, what can we do to reverse it or get the gods to be pleased with us? So it was a superstition, a many gods worship. And so they're like, she's the one that's not sick. Why is she not sick? Why is everybody else sick? Okay, she was taken from him. What did he really, what's the truth? What What did Abram say to me? Wait a minute, Abram? And so Pharaoh comes back to Abram in the next part of the passage, and says, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why do you not tell me she was your wife? Why do you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her. Get out of here. (laughs) Pharaoh gave them orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Pharaoh, a wicked, violent man, rebukes Abram. (laughs) What a contrast. The one who received the promises is rebuked by the one who uh, could be judged by God for what he's doing. And so, get out, don't come back, he says. So we have a few life lessons from Abram's life that we can learn. 
First one is this. God calls us to a, put quotation marks around it, lifestyle, right? A lifestyle, all in. Not a compartment, <laughs> but a lifestyle. Not a part, but the whole. And the process is very practical, painfully practical, along each step. Along each step, it's a painful process, but it's a sweet process, right? It's a salty, sweet process of obedience to God. And so the lifestyle of faith, not just a moment of faith, means that Abram jumped into a life of faith, but each day we actually jump out of bed. And we could do that as a good practice. We wake up in the morning as groggy as we feel and just take a physical jump and tell yourself, I don't care how I feel, I'm taking a jump of faith into today. Not just that day I turn to Jesus, but every day. And that can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people because God's personally working in each of us and our community is alongside us in all of that too. And so now Abram had an amazing faith last week, but he now is wavering in his faith. What way was it that Abraham failed? Because what is our faith? Well, it's not a moralism. It's not a do-good humanism. It's not even for us, ultimately. It's it's under God's glory. And so our faith is in God, right? The, The writer of Hebrews makes it clear in Hebrews 6. He says, faith toward God. In other words, faith away from me. Faith isn't faith in faith and positive thinking. Faith's not in me or my ability. It's only in the character that God's worked in me through trials and overcoming temptations. It's only by the sacrifice of Jesus that we come near. And so we see in the gospel a challenge of a lifestyle to trust and to obey God in everything. That's the gospel obedience in a nutshell, to trust and obey God. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus, right, but to trust and obey. Well, we're going to see here it's a lot more than just this life. In First Peter, we see uh, this profound passage on the screen, and this is going to center us on the ultimate inheritance that's promised to us. Abram was given the promise of a land, That points to something, the writer of Hebrews tells us, a a promised future rest. The earth and humanity will be restored. God will end this thing gloriously. And Peter tells us our hope right here in the midst of anything in life. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now feel that statement. Peter's like jumping off his chair. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Announcement. He goes on to say, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. So it's God's power that sustains your faith. Your faith is in his power. And then you're 
guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's parts of our salvation that are going to blow our mind that are far future yet. He's going to deliver you in small things through trials, as the psalmist would continually ask God to do. But it's unto a greater salvation that we can't even imagine when our bodies are saved from corruption. And that's what we're looking ahead to. And so we don't want to sell ourselves short because that's what causes us to purify ourselves just as he is pure, seeing clearly the hope that we have in him. And so it goes on to say in verse 5, or verse 6, I should say, in this salvation that's coming, you rejoice now through many trials. For a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though now you've not seen him, now here's where it's so important, you love him. And though you do not yet, you do not yet now see him, you believe in him, and it causes your heart to rejoice with joy that's inexpressible. Right, the language of heaven that Paul was caught up to in 2 Corinthians 12, a language that's inexpressible that no man can understand or share, the things Paul encountered in that vision, that's heaven is going to be so inexpressible. Eye is not seen. Mind is not heard or conceived what God has for those who love him. Right? But the Holy Spirit has revealed these things to us. He's the foretaste, the down payment of that divine glory to come which keeps us strong in our pilgrimage when we feel weak. And so he goes on to say, this is bringing about the obtaining, verse 9, of the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, the day of salvation that's not here yet, right? We're saved by the cross, but we're saved unto something in hope, a glorified body on a glorified earth when there's no more disease, mosquitoes, hatred, war, and everything else we hate, okay? Our summer vacation outside under the sun with no sweat and no bug bites, right? All right, here we go. Looking forward to that. So what's that a picture of? These gold bars. Both a comparison and a contrast. Comparison of the journey. We're being tested, refined, through opportunities of circumstantial decisions. We rejoice, we pray, we give thanks in all circumstances, even though we don't like all circumstances. In fact, we despise a lot of circumstances. But we look away to Jesus and rejoice, and our faith is refined like gold in the fire. But guess what? Peter had just said, this gold perishes though refined in the fire. So there's a contrast. Your faith is ginormously greater in its outcome than the refining of gold or whatever the most valuable thing is today. If there's something more valuable, you financial people, than gold nowadays, in your mind, (laughs) grab a hold of that. More valuable than the most value in this crazy economy. Okay. So our faith is being tested. Okay. Our faith is compared, in in the next slide, and contrasted, gold refined in the fire. God knows exactly when, what, and how much we need in the way of trials to endure for our joy to be made full. Our tender father knows how much and if necessary, the trials, it says in 1 Peter. He cares about our hearts, character and depth. 
He knows exactly what we need. And so as he works in us what we need, it's for our joy to be made full. Jesus said, I desire that your joy be made full in John 15, 11. That's the purpose of following Jesus is that through trials, we look away from us and others to God. And then our joy, therefore, can be as full as it can't be any other way. So if we're not living the Christian faith in abandon that way and we're lacking joy, we can assess why. It's something to do with our lifestyle not being abandoned to his cause because he promises when we do, our joy should be full. Okay, so I just got really loud all of a sudden. If you were gonna be a marathon runner like Janice and Thomas tries to be with her sometimes, um, right, Thomas? (laughs) The golds, the gold runners, uh, you realize that there's certain things you have to do And other things are better and more beneficial to do. (laughs) So working out every day is great. Working out many days is good. Eating healthy is exceptional. Not eating so healthy makes it harder to work through the marathon. Uh, So if you want to be a marathon runner, there's a lot of things that you do as an athlete to discipline yourself as a lifestyle to learn to be a good marathon runner. Uh, That's our faith. We're on a pilgrimage until that day. We need to posture ourselves in a way where we can receive God's grace and power through his spirit to walk faithful to Jesus. And that means we allow everything to come down around us so that Jesus is left front and center. So we can focus on him in our entire lifestyle. A, A life of faith's built upon, in the next slide, a growing intimate relationship with God that leads to risk taking rather than self preservation. Though you don't See him, you love him. Though you don't yet fully know him, you believe in him. You see, that intimacy with Jesus, that knowledge of God that transforms you into his likeness, that you're experiencing the true knowledge of God and it's washing over you to walk confidently and fully surrendered in his image, the way he designed you to be, the affections that you need on your heart to be able to be strong, to obey out of desire and not out of legalism or performance or moralism, okay, the strength of God. He does that in our heart through intimate knowledge, abiding in the vine, sitting at his feet and hearing his words like Mary. And so this is the importance of our faith is understanding it's a relationship with God that leads to risk-taking rather than self-preserving, self-preservation. So we see That it's a life of embracing selflessness and love motivated sacrifice in contrast to Abram's decision to make his wife suffer with with the Pharaoh and spare his own life. It's in contrast to that. Because self-preservation, as the slide says, is the great joy killer of faith. Again, as discussed, if we're in compromise to this wholehearted abandon of taking up our cross, losing our life, loving Jesus above our family, possessions, and comforts. When we compromise that, we compromise the joy. It it doesn't work. It's like when you bake a cake, you need baking soda. Or is it baking powder? Baking soda. Make sure I get it right. You need that element or or it's not going to bake the right way. You can make cooking work. You can adjust with salt and other things. But baking is an ingredient, important focus. And so there's an ingredient in our faith that's needed. We have to have this understanding uh, that joy only comes when we're not living in self-preservation. 
It's the great joy killer of our faith. It's ironic. It's paradoxical, right? It seems to be contradictory, but it's the truth of our faith. And that's how we know we're on the narrow path because if you find it, because it doesn't make sense. That's why we're not ashamed of the gospel when we see it for what it is. It's easy to be ashamed of the gospel because it's foolish. Man on a cross dying, supposedly God, but yet a man. Does that impact me? Until it does. And then you're never the same. <laughs> and it continues the rest of your life. You keep leaping in faith. Next scroll, next scroll. There we go. I'm back in ancient Hebrew days. Okay. <laughs> I just got transported back to Abram. Amazing. All right. Wow. Okay. And Jesus is telling me right now, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That wasn't just for the first century. (laughs) It just, we're in a lot more rubble of chaos in our day to dig through and see that that's the same call today. (laughs) It's the same call today, but we're kind of, we're insulated by our politics. (laughs) We are. And by politics, I mean what politics lead to. My preferences, my comfort, my stuff. Everybody stay away. (laughs) We're insulated to the gospel. (laughs) Jesus said, take up the death death instrument so they know how to take care of you when they want to kill you for believing in me. That's literally what it means. Oh, it's so far from our culture. It's so far from our day. There's so many layers removed, but it's like, Jesus, my worship is all for you. I'll die on a cross because you died for me. This world's passing. (laughs) May be crucified to the world and the world to me. I'm a dying man and the world's dead to me. I'm living for something else and I want others to come with me. So if I die, I die. Forgive them. They don't know what they do. That's our gospel mission right there, to walk in Jesus' steps. Walk in his steps, including potentially suffering and persecution and martyrdom one day. Some and many in the church have. It's spreading. We know that our culture is close. We all know that if we look at the signs and don't put our head in the sand like an ostrich, (laughs) that persecution is on its way. It's on its way. I don't know if it's 10, 5, 10, 20, 50 years, but it's coming. We need to be prepared and persecution-proofed by not living for self-preservation. Okay. This sober call leads us to great joy, right? It really does. He calls us in the next slide uh, to a lifestyle of faith, not just a moment of faith. And next gospel lesson from Abram's life is faith fills happen when we're focused on circumstances rather than God and his future promises. Okay? Abram's focus in the passage starts on the famine, severe, shifts to the men of Egypt for help, and away from God. Nowhere in the passage does he say anything about God, and he does something very foolish in giving his wife to Pharaoh. What we see is circumstances are things that can get our focus or distraction. When a trial is upon us, we stare at the circumstances, right? Naturally. We're going to. We can't deny it. We're not going to be pie in the sky about it, like it's not really happening. But as we're looking at those trials and assessing the reality of them, on our own and with others and our family, being vulnerable where it's difficult to be in a trial. And we learn to look to the brothers and sisters in Christ and then look up to God, then these circumstances are no longer our focus. 
Faith fails happen when we keep focusing on the circumstance and the trial and don't look to God through it. It doesn't mean we don't kick and scream and get annoyed with it and have a bad anger moment and complain. But then we like, but you said I'm to give thanks in all circumstances. I'm to rejoice. I'm to pray. In the midst of all circumstances, I can look up because there's a day coming when this trial will purify me to the point of resurrection. When I see him, I'll be like him. Body, mind, spirit, completely blameless in the day of Jesus appearing. He's faithful to do it and he will complete it. That's our hope. And so in that, we see that when we're pressed, in this next slide, uh, by trials, we're often tempted to find our own solutions to our problems apart from God, right? Uh, this results from lacking an eternal perspective and a blurry understanding of God's promises, especially the future ones, right? Uh, the promises of the future are so key. We learn to say no to our comforts now, so we can say yes to more eternal comfort. Did you know that you're going to get rewarded for each trial? I can't fathom that. And a lot of us are content to say, I just want to get there. But that's not actually discipleship. That's not actually biblical. Jesus wants us as a good father to understand there's rewards for obedience. It's consistent through the whole scripture. He wants us to understand, you can do it in that trial. Look to me. It stinks. You may have a lot stronger words for it. But the truth is, that's okay because you're being raw about the evil in this world and your inability to handle it and the injustice and you're leaning on God. You're saying, God, in this moment, I want to look to you. I want to know you. I want to love you even though I can't see you. There's a day coming I will and that gives me great endurance in this trial. That gives me great hope through this trial, I want to say no because the payout's greater in the life to come. I don't want to give in to the fleeting passions of sin. I'd rather suffer reproach with the people of Christ like Moses did and any others that came before in faith. And so this is the character of our faith. And both Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 11, this defines our faith so clearly. It says, and we desire, in Hebrews 6, 11, and 12, each one of you show the same earnestness. Same earnestness as who? As Abram, as Abraham in the passage, if you read the whole passage, and other patriarchs of the faith who had the full assurance of hope. Show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope. In other words, your hope will become reality. You don't hope for what you already have, right? Paul says in Romans 8, your hope is assured. You keep hoping until the object of your hope is fulfilled, okay? Hope, you hope, fully assured, until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So what's faith? Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen Important parallel passage to read in your own is 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 5, 5. Tells you what these unseen things are. It's a body in heaven that the Lord will clothe you with for the resurrection. It's eternal life, immortal life, swallowed up. Our faith will be sight. We live by faith, not by sight. One day, our faith will be sight. We'll be clothed in glory. That's our hope. 
We don't want to short sell it. We're to set our hope completely on the grace that's to be revealed when Jesus Christ comes. That's 1 Peter 1.13, just a few verses after the passage we read. Completely, not partly, not mostly. We can't add our morals or our politics, I'll say again. We can't add our strength to the, the matter, the equation, when it comes to trusting God for his fulfillment. It's all sold out to him in the cross and dependent upon him for fulfillment. Uh, faith fails happen when we are focused on circumstances and rather on God and his future promises. Uh, finally, faith fails are of sin patterns turn to victory at the foot of the cross. At the foot of the cross. Last week, some of you uh, put surrender papers out, a few weeks ago, I should say, on Blessing Sunday, describing what was the main thought that comes to mind when you think of surrender. Some said anger. Some said being more patient with my kids, etc. You fill in the blank if you remember yours or you think of it now. You can apply it now. But at the foot of the cross, that's the only place that we can deal with temptation and faith fail, is to come to the cross. Jesus, who never failed, will give us strength to turn around and have victory after we've failed in temptation. In fact, that's the whole purpose, is that he was in every way tested, Hebrews 4, but never failed, never sinned. And this Jesus has passed through the heavens as our mediator, as our intercessor. He's ascended. And so we look to him. That's our goal. He'll finish the product. We keep looking to him, looking away from us, and know that he intercedes on our behalf. Okay, so the cross is a place of desperate surrender to a lifestyle of repentance and faith. It's a desperate surrender to a lifestyle of repentance and faith. Charles Spurgeon said the believer will repent till their dying day. So true, because we're returning to the Lord with our whole heart. He's refining our faith to its object, Jesus himself. We're to be in union with Jesus and become like him through trials and tribulations, temptation, persecution, overcoming in the hope of eternal life only, rejoicing with the deposit that we need to get to that day, the Holy Spirit, cultivating intimacy with him. So Hebrews 12, 1 through 4 speaks to this process. It says, since we're surrounded by history, Hebrews 11, the people of faith, right? including Abraham, Sarah, and many more. A great cloud of witnesses that have gone on to the end and, and see God will fulfill his promises, and they're cheering us on from the bleacher stand of heaven, saying, yes, yes, run, run. And here's how it's described. Lay aside every weight. This is no longer the training and the practice. This is the real deal. Be ready to run with everything. Run free and do this. Deal with all the sin that so clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race, the marathon before us, that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, author, and perfecter of our faith. He is who we want to be like. He is the author. He's the perfecter. He's the substance. He's the person of our faith, and we're in union with him. His yoke is easy. And who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He said, I can, I can do it. Though he sweat blood, bursting vessels in pressure, Luke 22 tells us, over the reality of what he's about to do. He didn't flinch. He set his face like a flint on our behalf in the, in the Father's glory. 
And so he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin in yourself before sin against your, from your brother, right? You're looking to Jesus who endured our own shenanigans against him, our own evil against him that put him there on the cross in one sense. And you're also not growing weary because he did it on your behalf to relieve you, ultimately fully relieve you from sin completely. But in this age, you can, in your struggle against sin, have victory. But he says it's not finished. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That's not a very comfortable statement. Um, But ultimately, we're a confessor of Jesus or we're a martyr for Jesus. And both are obedience. And God knows. God can be trusted. Our whole devotion to him is the important aspect of it. Our struggle against sins of warfare can get bloody, can get painful, can feel like our back's against the wall, like we're assaulted and cornered and there's no hope and no help. That's why the Psalms were written. God, deliver me. My sins are up over my head. My enemies are like an army. But you, I will be confident in this one thing. You, I want to know you. Gaze on your beauty. You'll set me high above my enemies. God, deliver me now in a sign of your ultimate deliverance one day. But deliver me now, God. God will deliver you. Cry out to him in your trial. Cry out to him in your temptation. All right. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. In us, in us humans, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. We all know what this means for temptation. With irresistible power, desire ceases mastery of the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and it's in flames. It makes no difference whether it's a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge, our love of fame and power or greed for money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire is real. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. We forget that the Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. He leads us to streams of living water and green pastures. He restores our soul. He makes us lie down. He guides us with his rod and his staff. He makes us a table in the presence of our enemies and anoints our head with oil, the oil of gladness even, right? And in that, he pursues us. He pursues us. It's a better way to understand. He follows, goodness and mercy follow us. Well, literally, it's pursue us all the days of our life so we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He is a shepherd. He's with us in the room the reason we sin and give in to sin is we forget God's in the room. Not just in the room, but in the room smiling. He likes us. He hates our sin, but he likes us. He showed us his love on the cross. He demonstrated that to the uttermost. He laid his life down, washed our feet. But he likes us, and he loves the process. He loves the process. I need to say it again. He loves 
the process. Lay your performance down at the foot of the cross. Lay your morality down at the foot of the cross. Lay your political persuasion at the foot of the cross. It can't lead in your life. Lay your football addiction down at the foot of the cross. <laughs> Lay your demand to be right in your marriage down at the foot of the cross. Guys, we need to be intentional with this. It's worth it. It's time. There's nothing else. This is the moment that we've all been waiting for to encounter the living God in all his majesty and let him have his way. Let's do it together. We need to remember that we don't battle alone. The writer of Hebrews says this, take care lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't get spiritual sclerosis of the arteries. Seriously, that's what the Greek actually means. Keep your heart open to the things of God and to your brothers day after day. Don't hide your sin because there's no victory. There's no victory. Last slide. In hidden sin. We need each other because we have blind spots. We don't smell our bad breath. That's pride. <laughs> Everybody else does. And we need each other because we have need for confession. Because James says this. He says, confess your sins to one another. Yeah, yeah, to God. But because of our idolatrous hearts, which God are we confessing to? The God of all his majesty or the God who's our buddy and we can just quickly get it off our chest? Because the God in his majesty causes us to confess in the same attitude of Jesus dying on a cross. This is why we come to the foot of the cross. Oh God, open my heart like your son opened his body at the cross so that when I see my sin, I open myself to you. Father, into my hands I commit your, my spirit. It's willing, but my flesh is weak. Sweet hour of prayer, give me strength to say no to foolishness, open my eyes to its ugliness at the cross. In this time of communion, those are the two things you can have in mind. We're going to go into communion, and I want you to remember a couple of things. Confession of sin. If you need to go to somebody, do just that. And as James says, if you need healing, sometimes God gets our attention through physical ailment. Well, he's definitely getting our national and our corporate attention to sickness, our, our worldwide there's so much going on, and it makes us dependent on God. You need prayer for healing? Ask somebody to pray for you for healing. But ultimately, when we take these elements, which are going to be on the four corners of the room, and you take them back to your seat and wait for us all to take it together, remember that there's power in his forgiveness, and there's power in his body for healing. God can and will and loves to heal. And so.